Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Well, good morning. It's so good to see you and be with you and love celebrating communion together as a faith family. We're so thankful for God's blessing in that. And would ask you if you would to turn to your, in your Bible to Daniel chapter 8 as we look together this morning at his word. And uh, I don't know if, uh, if you are like me or not, but uh, I love movies. Any movie lovers in the room? I like just sitting around and watching movies. 2020 has been a good year for movies, right? Uh, not because they're coming out in theaters, but because you had nothing else to do for a while than stay home and watch some. But uh, there are some times that I'll be flipping through channels, and, and again, you may or may not be like me, but I can see a movie come on TV that I've seen 15 or 20 times, but I will stop and watch it again. I just love to watch movies. Uh, my wife, not so much. Once she's seen something, she's kind of like, yeah, we've watched that before. We don't have to do that one again. Uh, I like to just watch things over and over. Uh, and yet there are some movies that you come across that just at the end of them, you kind of go, I think I'm more confused now than when I started the movie. I'm not really sure what that was fully about. Uh, case in point, I don't know if you've seen it or not. I'm not necessarily endorsing it, but uh, Inception was just kind of one of those movies. It was like, are we dreaming? Is this reality? What's going on here? I don't know where we are. I'm, I'm pretty sure at the end of the movie, I was more confused than at the beginning of the film, right? Some people felt that way about the Matrix trilogy, the, the movies from the Matrix, that they just went... I don't know. I'm kind of confused by all of this. What does all this mean? Uh, another one for me was Groundhog Day. Uh, totally different genre of movie than what I just talked about. Uh, but for me, it was kind of like you get to the end and you're like, so I mean, the first time I ever watched that, I was just going, that was the stupidest movie I've ever seen in my entire life, you know? And, uh, and I get to the end and go, so... Did, did everybody relive the same day over and over again or just him? And, and why did he have to relive the same day over and over again? And, and when he got to the end, what, what changed that made it stop? And, and so you just had all these unanswered questions. And, and so now as I've been thinking about this, I want to go home and rewatch Groundhog Day again, right? Uh, and so it's just one of those things that when you see something, sometimes it doesn't just make sense. Now, why am I talking about movies at the beginning of the message this morning? Hopefully to make this all clear, because this is where we're going to find Daniel. As we get into chapter 8, Daniel's going to have another vision. Perhaps different than the dream he had in Daniel chapter 7. This is described not as a dream, but as a vision. It's something that he's shown. But when he gets to the end of this vision and we're told this comes two years later than his vision in chapter seven, so two years have passed by, it's still in the reign of Belshazzar, uh, but we're told that Daniel's had these two years and then he has this vision that's shown to him. But by the time he sees the vision and he gets an explanation for it, here's what we read in Daniel chapter eight, verse 27. It says, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. All right, and so that's Daniel saying, I watched the movie and I got to the end of it and I didn't understand. 
It didn't make full sense. I didn't have complete awareness or fulfillment of what was taking place in that. And so that's what we're going to see today. As we move into this, Daniel's going to have this vision of two animals fighting. And if you were with us last week, you've been watching online and keeping up. We saw last week he had this vision of, of different animals that came against each other. The animals represent kingdoms. Well, in this one, he sees these two beasts. They are corresponding beasts of the vision that he had last week, but they're represented differently, where they were hybrid animals and kind of these crazy, weird animals in the first one. In this, he's going to see a ram and he's going to see a goat. All right. And so they're much more natural types of animals that he's going to see. And finally, we're going to see that Daniel doesn't understand what he saw that's going to happen in the future. So some of the events that we're going to talk about today take place during what we call the intertestamental period. Right. And so if you're unfamiliar with that, that just means between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a period of time that the Bible doesn't really describe or talk about that in depth. Uh, there's about 400 years that pass from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. We call that the intertestamental period, all right? So some of the things that Daniel sees in his vision are going to take place during that period of time. Uh, they're not fully described in Scripture, but they take place historically in that section of time. So Daniel's currently living in the Babylonian kingdom, but there's about to be a transfer of power. The Persians are coming in, and the Persians are going to do some things much differently than the Babylonians. They're going to uh, have some, uh, some goodwill to the people that they conquer, and instead of keeping them under conquered reign, they're going to release them back to their homelands. So where Babylon brought everyone that they conquered to Babylon to form and establish their kingdom, Persia is going to say, you get to go back home now. We see this play out with Ezra and Nehemiah when the people of God are released to go back to Jerusalem, back to Israel. Ezra and Nehemiah lead the charge to rebuild the temple, to rebuild build the wall around Jerusalem to reestablish worship of God in the holy city of Jerusalem. And so these are the things that are taking place. And this is what God is going to show to Daniel. However, after uh, their release, there's going to be yet another kingdom that's going to rise. Greece under the leadership of Alexander the Great. And Alexander is going to treat the people of God well. He's going to come to Jerusalem and he's going to be okay with the Jewish people, the Israelite people. But after him, we're going to see four kings come to reign in his kingdom and after his authority is over and his death. And so what Daniel's going to show us to this morning is going to give us a glimpse into those things. All right. So if you will look at this passage of scripture with me, Daniel chapter eight, we're going to read the first 14 verses together and then stop for a minute. It says in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. And I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but it grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and it became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west and it crossed the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and it charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it and the goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it. And none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place, 
four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry host to the ground, to the earth, and it trampled on them. It set itself up to be as, the, as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord in his sanctuary and was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and all the daily sacrifices were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. All right, so we see initially here the setting of this. Daniel tells us this is a vision, perhaps again, different than the dream that he had in chapter seven, but he finds himself at the citadel of Susa. Now, again, he's kind of transported there in this vision. He's not physically there, I don't believe, but he's shown this. He's at the citadel of Susa and he's standing beside the Uli Canal. Now, this is important because in Babylonian kingdom, Daniel would have gone, where in the world am I? I'm at this new citadel, this, this place in Susa. This is not part of Babylon, but this is the capital of the Persian empire. And so he finds himself with the Persians and Daniel's being shown by God that a new kingdom is coming and this is where it's coming from. It's going to come from Persia. So that's what I would think that's going on with the setting of this. And just like the dream of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw and that Daniel interpreted, now we're going to see this next kingdom that's coming up. Nebuchadnezzar knew there would be a second kingdom and a third and a fourth until finally the kingdom of God appeared and crushed all the other kingdoms. And so that's what we're seeing now. Babylon is about to fall. Persia is about to come into power. Then Daniel tells us about two animals. He sees these two animals in his vision. And they're more natural than what we saw in chapter seven. They're much more uh, original kind of animals, a ram and a goat. And he says the ram had two horns, right? And one was longer than the other and it grew up after the other. In other words, we get the Median and Persian empires and we see these two come together where one grows up larger than the other. Persia eventually overtook the Median Empire and became just its own dominant force. Then we have this next thing that shows up, the goat. And it has a prominent horn that later breaks and four horns grow in its place. We'll talk about that in just a minute. From one of these four horns comes a little horn. Right? And as he describes this, he says it's going to grow in power and it's going to move toward the south, the east, and toward the beautiful land. That's Israel. And so Daniel's describing that another conquest is going to come against the people of God. So in this vision that we see Daniel tell us about, the horn does some things that appear pretty supernatural, right? If you go back and you look at verse 10, it says it grew, the little horn, it grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry hosts to the ground. So what in the world are we talking about when we see this little horn? Is he able to actually attack the heavens and throw down angels and, and angelic beings and cosmic beings? Uh, or what's going on here? Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that. And so I wanna give you some context. When you think about how Genesis, the covenant of Abraham was described, what does God tell Abraham his descendants will be like? Like the stars of the heavens, right? 
And then in Exodus, when the people of God are, re are rescued from captivity in Israel, in the Exodus, we're told that the people of God are called the army of God or the host of God. And so it may just very well be that as Daniel sees this small horn grow in power and come against the people of God and the host of God, right? And he's able to conquer and take them down. Now, that's the first part of this. On some level, Daniel is interpreting some things that I think are gonna pick back up and play out in a very future context, even for us still today, so that there's still future reference. Dan, or John, when he writes the book of Revelation, is gonna pick up a lot of these same concepts and he's gonna apply it to a future time, still yet to come, all right? And so when we see Daniel here, though, anytime there's a physical conflict, there's also a cosmic conflict that's going on behind the scenes that we don't necessarily get to see. However, if you'll hang in there with us and you'll come back, when we get to chapter 10 and 11, we're going to see this fleshed out even more. And this cosmic conflict is going to be opened up and we're going to have a better understanding of what's going on in the invisible realms that we can't necessarily see right now. But in the New Testament, Paul tells us, and the writers of the New Testament tell us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? against the powers and the rulers of this dark world, against the authorities and the principalities and spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, right? And so there is a realm beyond us where war is taking place that we don't see with our physical eyes. And yet in our physical conflicts in this earth, there are spiritual realities behind them that play out, all right? So we're gonna see that play out more and more as we get deeper into the book of Daniel. So we're told that this horn sets himself up to be as great as the commander of the host of the, of the army of the Lord. He wants to be as great as God himself, uh, taking over the daily sacrifice and doing away with it. This little horn that grows up in power is literally going to go to the temple in Jerusalem and take over the sacrificial system. He's going to remove the sacrifices of the people of God to God. He's gonna set up a statue of worship and he's going to offer desecrating uh, sacrifices, detestable sacrifices until finally all sacrifices to God end. All right, so that's what we're gonna see as we get deeper into this. Then a question gets asked. As Daniel has this vision, a question gets asked. If you remember in chapter seven, Daniel asks questions and goes, tell me what's going on here. Tell me what this means. Help me understand. In chapter eight, it's not Daniel asking, but it's a holy one. So look again at verse 13. He says, then I heard a holy one speaking, perhaps an angel, perhaps another one of the saints of God, but it's a created being by God. He says, I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for this vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. And he said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Now, there are different ways to approach this number and people disagree about it. And even historically being able to look back at this time period of the Persian empire and the uh, Grecian empire, we still, even after seeing some things historically play out, we don't know 100% what this means. There's a couple of ways you can think about this. Number one is that he says, after these things happen, 2,300 days will pass. So that could potentially just mean 2,300 days will pass before the temple will be brought back under Jewish control. The sacrifices to God will be re-implemented and we're back in working order for the Jewish people, 2,300 days. A second way of looking at this that people think 
might be that there is a morning and an evening sacrifice. You hear Daniel say that. It'll be morning and evening, 2,300 days, right? And so there is a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice, which could very well mean that there will be 1,150 morning and evening sacrifices or 2,300 total sacrifices that are made until the kingdom comes back or the temple is reinstituted for Jerusalem for the Jewish people, all right? We don't have to get this exactly right, okay? We don't have to be able to say, it's this, guaranteed, this is the one. We're not 100% told, and so we need to be okay with not fully knowing. As we're working through this book of prophecy, it's important for us to understand some things about scripture and about how to approach prophetic texts. And the first thing is this, that we need to let the Bible interpret the Bible. In other words, we don't need to come to this and read these first 14 verses and then go, okay, 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 here's what I think's happening. Let me tell you what I think is taking place. Daniel doesn't do that. The holy ones don't do that. The people of God don't do that. They don't say, okay, here's, here's my interpretation. Here's what I think the goat means, the ram means, the horns mean. We let scripture interpret scripture, which is why we don't stop reading at verse 14. When you get to verse 15, we start to see the interpretation of the vision that's given. So I want you to read along with me and follow this interpretation. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a voice calling from the Eli Canal, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. So we see Gabriel, who's an archangel of God, and he's told to give Daniel the meaning. Verse 17, as he, Gabriel, came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and I fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not in his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and, will himself, uh, and he will consider himself superior. And when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. So let's start just by talking about this idea of a distant future. When he's told the time of the end or the end times, we might necessarily jump to that and in our way of thinking about it, and again, this is why we need to let scripture interpret scripture, that we would go, oh, that's the very, very end, the end times that we're still waiting on, that John describes in Revelation, the end of the end, right? For Daniel, I believe what we're seeing here, and if you're taking notes this morning and wanna write some things down, here's what I would say. This doesn't necessarily mean the end of all time, but the end of the Jewish captivity when they'll return home, and then what will happen to them there? When you see in scripture, Daniel's visions, you're gonna see in this, he's gonna tell them, this is the king of Media Persia, it's the king of Greece. And following up on Greece, there are gonna be four kingdoms and they're gonna rise and one of those kingdoms is gonna come against the Jewish people. Also, when you think about the Old Testament and between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what takes place? 
Jesus is born onto the scene. At the beginning of the New Testament, Jesus starts to proclaim his message. A new king has come and a new kingdom is here. And Jesus will go around saying, repent for the kingdom of God has come. The end time of the kingdoms of man and the beginning reign of the kingdom of God on the earth. And while there are still kingdoms on the earth ruled by men, the kingdom of God has come and has put itself all over the earth and God is in charge. And so this is what we're seeing here. This vision can also have dual interpretation and value for that. Daniel can be seeing the things that are gonna be happening in the future for him and his people and then in the very distant future that we still have not seen yet as well. And so it's okay to think about what will take place in the very end, but Daniel's vision is accomplishing things that will take place in the end of these kingdom eras, all right? So then he tells us about the two ram, the two animals that we saw, the ram and the goat. Uh, In Daniel's dream in chapter seven, we're not told exactly what the kingdoms are. Remember, we're just told that they were beasts, but they're not described as which kingdom. In Daniel chapter eight, we're told distinctly what they are. He says the two-horned ram, and if you're taking notes and want to write some, write some things down or fill in some blanks, the two-horned ram is the kings of Media and Persia, but they're not equal. Did you notice that? One grows up longer than the other and after the other because the Persian people became the dominant ones. Uh, They allowed the Jewish people to return home after years in captivity. Again, that's what we said earlier. Ezra and Nehemiah were given ability to lead the people back home and to reestablish the temple and to secure Jerusalem by rebuilding the wall. But Persia's reign would only last so long before yet another king would come along. And this is where the goat comes in. The Bible calls him a shaggy goat. And again, if you're taking notes, this shaggy goat is Greece. And it had a prominent horn between its eyes. And so if you think about Greece, the prominent horn, and the Bible describes this as the first king, is Alexander the Great. And when you notice about this shaggy goat as it goes across the world from the west, coming east to conquer everything, it says it moved without touching the earth. We talked last week about how Greece was described as a leopard with wings like an eagle. It moves quickly. It conquers everything. Nothing can stand in its way. And Daniel again tells us that this Grecian king comes, Alexander the Great, and he destroys and conquers everything. But Alexander, at an early age, died. After his death, his two children, historically, were told that his two children were killed, and then the kingdom of Alexander was left to four generals. And they didn't have the same kind of power that Alexander did. The kingdom starts to divide and split up. The two most notable that we probably recognize, if you've taken some middle school history or some early high school history, are the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And it's from these two kingdoms that one horn grows up, this little horn that Daniel sees. And so what we're told is that out of this, in verse 23, in the latter part of their reign, when rebels have been completely wicked, a fierce looking king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but not of his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. So one of the Seleucid kings, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, emerged to claim the the crown, to claim the throne. And so we're told he comes to power, but not by human means, right? Not by his own power. 
Uh, so in other words, he might either have been propped up by Satan demonically to gain power. But another way of thinking about this is that when uh, Epiphanes became king, he took out his nephew who should have been king and through, uh, through the reign and the power of his military, he established himself to be king. When he did that, he went against the people of Israel. And so here's what we're told about him. He would be a master of intrigue a liar and a deceiver. He was a master manipulator. This describes uh, Antiochus very well. He would become strong, but not by his own power. He would cause astounding devastation. So what we see historically, when Antiochus came against the Jews, he slaughtered tens of thousands of Jewish people. Not only that, but he brought an image of Zeus to the temple and he set it up to worship the god Zeus. And then he started sacrificing pigs in the Jewish temple. This was a desecration to the Jewish people. And eventually Antiochus just cut off all worship to God in the first place. There were no more temple sacrifices that were taking place. All right. And so then all of these things that take place uh, happen in this intertestamental period. And then we finally are told he would consider himself superior, not only to men, but to God, that he would raise himself up as a God. All right. So here's the things that we learn uh, about this king who goes against the, the people of God. And the last thing that we need to see about him is this, that he will be destroyed, but not by human power. All right, so we're told he comes to power, but not by his own, and he's destroyed, but not by his own power, not by the power of men. So God comes in and takes out Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, historically, we're told that when the Jewish people regained control of the temple, that Antiochus heard about it, laid on his bed, became ill, and died. No human hand touched him to bring him to death, but God killed him, right? Or he died of these natural causes under the authority of God. That he's not taken out, he's not killed by humans, but he just dies. So the question then becomes, great history lesson, I guess, maybe not so great, I don't know. I'm looking at a lot of blank faces out there, but what do we do with this? What do we do with this? And why, after being given this interpretation, can Daniel at the end of it go, I don't understand. It was beyond understanding. I mean, we get it, right? We read about this. He was told the, the Median Persian kingdom is coming. The Grecian kingdom is coming. There's going to be war against the people of God. And yet Daniel gets to the end of vision and goes, I don't understand. And so here's what I think we can draw from this. These are things that would take place just after the life of Daniel with the two new kingdoms, the Medo Persian kingdom and the Grecian kingdom. The people of God are going to be allowed to return home to Jerusalem. And Daniel's going to see all of this. After 70 plus years in captivity, he's going to see his people get to return home under the, the kings of the Persians. And he's going to say, they've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the wall. Everything's going great. We're back to Jerusalem. We're back worshiping our king like we're supposed to. The temple sacrifices have been reinstituted. Everything's going our way. And then Daniel's going to see a little horn grow up among these kings that is going to once again come against the people of God and destroy them and take over the temple and destroy the sacrifices and bring about desolation. And I think Daniel looks at this vision and goes, I don't understand how God can once again allow his people to go through this. How is God going to let suffering take place? How is God going to allow these difficulties to happen? Why is God going to bring us back to our homeland only to let us be conquered again? And then we know historically that Rome rises up 
and that the people of God are under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. And I think as Daniel sees these things, he asks this question, why? I don't understand. And we ask that same question when God allows us to go through suffering as well. And I think this is where we land today, that we start to go, okay, God, I asked that question. Why do you allow suffering to take place in my life? Why did you take that person out of my life? Why did you allow this sickness? Why did, why did you allow this bankruptcy? Why did you allow this divorce? Why did you allow, God, these terrible things to happen? Why do we suffer? Why do we go through hardships? And so for us, if you're taking notes this morning, I want us just to see a few things. Number one is this, that there's a time and there's a purpose for suffering. Sometimes it's due to the sin of our persecutors, right? Sometimes it's because evil and wickedness reigns in this earth and people who will persecute us will come against us simply because they are evil and wicked. Sometimes because of the sin of our persecutors, suffering comes into our life. Sometimes it's the result of our sin or the sin of those within our faith community. And we've said this before that sin never stops with me. Sin never stops with you. Your sin has a domino effect to it that impacts and affects the lives of other people. And so we're not told necessarily in this who rebelled. Was it the people of God? So he sent another kingdom against them to, to uh, teach them a lesson in their, in their sinfulness? Or was it the, uh, the Greeks and the, the uh, Romans? In Daniel 8, 12, we're just told this. There's a rebellious action. We don't know if it's the Greeks or the Jews, but there was a price to be paid because of sin. Go back and look at verse 12. It says, because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to this little horn. And again, we see this and we go, was, was it the Jewish people's sin? Was it the people who was coming against them? Is it their sin? We don't know. But what we do know is that rebellion causes suffering. When we rebel against God, there's suffering that takes place. When other people rebel against God, they bring their wickedness and their evil against us. There's suffering that takes place. Here's the next thing. There are times God simply doesn't tell us the reason for our suffering. If you think back to the book of Job, Job suffered immensely. And the behind the scenes thing we were talking about earlier where God and Satan have this dialogue and this conversation and Satan says, well, hey, there's this guy down there, Job, and God actually brings him up and says, have you considered my servant, Job? And, and Dan, God, excuse me, Satan says, yeah, he's blessed because you've kept your hand on him and you've given him all these blessings. That's why he worships you. And then God gives free reign to Satan to destroy Job's life. The only thing he's not allowed to do is kill him. And through all of the suffering that Job goes through, he gets to the end and he starts questioning God. Why? Why are you doing this? And then God shows up. And do you remember the, how the story kind of unfolds? God does not give Job the answer to why he suffers. He simply allows Job to see his glory and to say, it's enough for you to know that I'm with you. And Job repents seeing the glory of God. He no longer needs to know why he's suffering. He just needs to know that his God is bigger than he had ever imagined. And so for us, that same thing is true. Our trials, the thing that God allows us to go through in life, they're meant to strengthen us, to help us see the glory of God all the more clearly. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. 
because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And there are dozens of passages of scripture in the Bible that sound just like that. God has a purpose and a reason why he allows us to go through suffering. And it's to mature us in our faith. The hardships that you go through, whether God explains them to you or not, have purpose. And then here's the thing that I love about this the most. God doesn't owe us an explanation for our suffering, but he has a reason and he always has an end. There's an end that comes to our suffering. In Daniel's vision, we're told that there's 2,300 days. There's a period of time. This man's gonna come against the Jewish people. There's going to be desolation and, and desecration, but it's going to have a limited period of time. And then he's going to come to an end, not by human power. God is in control. God is moving behind the scenes to bring an end to the suffering of his people. For us, maybe our suffering, maybe the hardships that we go through will end in this life and we'll get to see the goodness of God again restored to us like Job did in this life. Maybe not. Maybe God will allow your suffering to go on until you die. And then through the portal of death that brings you into real life, God will let you see all the suffering, all the hardships, all the persecution, all the things you went through in death, you'll understand why God allowed it in your life. But he doesn't owe us an explanation. He just wants us to know there will be an end. It won't endure forever and forever and forever. We're told in scripture and in Revelation, when a new kingdom arises, a new Babylon arises, that there will once again be persecution of the people of God that there will once again be hardship for the people of God on a global scale. And that once again, God will bring it to an end in his time and in his way. And then he will set up his eternal kingdom where he will rule and reign on the earth with his people forever and forever. And so we hold on to that promise. We hold on to that truth that God's in control. Not only is it true for our big picture stories, but it's true for our own personal lives. God's in control of your life. Jeremiah 1, 4 and 5 says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Psalm 139, 16 says, Your eyes, God, saw my unformed body. All the days were ordained for me, were written in your book before one of them ever came to be. So God knows everything about our lives. He's detailed everything out. Nothing catches us off guard. And then here's uh, the final thing that I want you to see. After having the vision and not understanding, not grasping it fully, Daniel comes to a place where he goes back to faithful service to the king. Look again at verse 27. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and I went about the king's business. I was appalled by the visions. It was beyond understanding. This ties back into everything we know about Daniel from Daniel 1 through 6. That Daniel's faithful to God. He's obedient to the things of God. Even in a pagan kingdom, Daniel gets up and he goes back to faithful service of the king. He lives out his faith every day, no matter what comes along. Daniel took a couple of sick days and then he got right back to service with the king. He said, God, show me this thing. It's tragic. It's awful. I don't understand it fully, but I've got a work to do to be faithful to my God. I'll serve my king. 
And so that's for us today too, I think, where we need to find ourselves. No matter what you're going through right now, the highest priority you have in life is faithful obedience to King Jesus. That's your highest priority. Maybe you've had some sick days that you've taken lately. Maybe there's even some things that have knocked you off your feet. You've questioned God, you've questioned his goodness, you've questioned his sovereignty, and you've kind of taken some sick days. And you've not been serving in the kingdom like you know you should because you've been disappointed, you've been discouraged, you've been hurt and angry and bitter. And I think what we can see from Daniel is this, is that no matter what, when we don't understand, we're called to get back on our feet and serve our king. We're called to faithful obedience to our God. And so maybe today the encouragement for you is simply this. It's time to get back up. It's time to get back to work in the kingdom. It's time to be about the things that God has called you to be about. We can't take any more days off. We can't wallow in our disappointment, in our sorrow, in our sadness, in our hurt, in our grief. It's okay to express those things. God is big enough to take your challenging questions and your disappointments and your hurt and to lay them at his feet. But we then must get back up and go back to work in the kingdom. He requires faithful obedience of us. We don't have to understand what God is doing. We do have to be faithful and obedient to his kingdom rule. And so that's what I want us to call us, what I want to call us to today. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.45 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.